You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMARQ. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. For me, when I think about the the digital approach for the government of Canada, I think about like leave no Canadian behind. And Canadians are not all equal in terms of their tax savviness. Think about, you know, your 80, 85 year old parents, and then think about my 21 year old daughter, like very different expectations of how technology participates. What if I'm an Indigenous person living up in the North? What if I'm a person with a hearing or a seeing a disability? I have different needs from technology. So for me, that is the strategy piece of how do you actually take this responsibility of having rock-solid operations of technology and translate that into the services that you provide, whether that's in a private sector organization or as a public service, because we serve Canadians. That is what we do. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. Having worked with the federal government of Canada, as well as provinces and localities throughout the country, I know firsthand that Canada has a real appetite for innovation. But it's one that's not always easy to satisfy, especially coming out of a pandemic. Many government leaders rightfully recognize that investments in digital transformation and innovation will be essential to Canada's economic recovery, future self-sufficiency, and collective social well-being. And in the past year, knowing that this investment is needed to be made, the government of Canada brought in a new federal CIO that has a comprehensive background doing this, including in the worst of times. Catherine Luello joined as the Chief Information Officer of the Government of Canada in the summer of 2021. And after nearly a year in her role, has had an impressive impact for both the employees of the government and also the citizens of Canada. She joined after a role as CIO at Air Canada, one of the world's largest commercial airlines, during arguably the hardest period of time the global commercial aviation industry has faced with the pandemic. We're going to talk about her time there, as well as the risks and rewards of digital transformation tech-related staffing challenges, and the push to establish single digital identities for Canadians. Catherine, it's such an honor to have you here with us today. Thank you for joining. Hey, thanks for having me, Brian. Uh, Really excited to have a conversation today. So um, I want to start off with a a question out of pure curiosity. You you left a 30-year career in the private sector with varying organizations. What brought you into public service? It's a question I get asked pretty frequently, as you can imagine. And uh, you're right, I had uh, a really um, a blessed career, actually, within the private sector, working for some iconic Canadian brands. And uh, in doing so, just was able to gain a whole bunch of experiences. And in fact, you know, got to do assignments that likely I wasn't overly qualified to do and was able to, to build that experience. And, uh, you know, I think coming through COVID has caused lots of folks to reflect. And for me, the reflection was, you know, what do I want to do with this next phase of my career? I've got 
two children, uh, both of whom are, um, let's call it launched. Um, my daughter's starting nursing school in September and um, my, my son is, is working. So it was a real opportunity for me to say, what do I want to spend some time on? And, you know, the digital file for the government of Canada um, has got lots of opportunities and the privilege that I've had to both um, be born, grow up, live and raise my children in this country um, just felt like the right opportunity to give something back. And I can tell you, um, it has been such a wonderful opportunity in the last 10 months to even learn more um, the complexity of the Canadian government, the files that we get to work on. There's not anything quite like it. And uh, I'm just inspired every day by the people that I'm surrounded with and get to work with. So uh, yeah, I mean, it was a real purpose-driven move for me. As you made that change, what's been the biggest learning curve? Obviously, there's there can be some some substantial differences, obviously, between working in private sector and public sector, but also similarities too. What's been a, a, what has been some of the things you've learned and some of the more challenging aspects of the role that you've taken on? You know, it's, it's interesting because I think part of what I backdrop this answer with is that I, I have worked for larger organizations more generally. I would say WestJet would be the notable exception, and there's certainly a large organization now. But when I started there, they were they were just sort of getting going. But I've lived, I've worked for the Telluses. I've worked for Air Canada and uh, for Enbridge. And so there's some familiarity for me around what it is like to work in a large, complex, um, sometimes bureaucratic organization. And so that sort of um, feels familiar. In fact, I've, I've said a few times that there's parts of those organizations I understand better now, having worked in government for 10 months, because I'm like, oh, that kind of feels the same way. And, you know, Air Canada many, many years ago was a crown. And some of the um, practices they have uh, even from a you know employee recognition, uh, long service awards, very much feel like some of what we still celebrate in government, and are good good parts of both of those organizations. And the other thing I would say is that working for those types of organizations, they were also very purpose driven companies. And so a real similarity that I see between my role in government and the people I get to work with. And my role uh, in, in private sector, you know, people that work at Air Canada are passionate about the fact that it's their job to connect people. Um, you know, they brought people back to Canada as the world shut down. They sent flight crews into areas when, you know, we didn't really know what was going on with COVID to bring Canadians home. You know, we transport people in difficult circumstances and moved cargo um, that was critical to keeping the Canadian economy going. Enbridge is about, you know, making sure we have lights and power and, and heat and all of those things. So the people that I worked with there really believed in the value that they were bringing to Canada. And that's similar to, you know, whether I'm working with my colleagues in the Department of Defense or immigration or in our social programs area or in sciences, there's that same contributing to a great country and being part of something bigger than you um, feeling. So that's also very familiar. The thing I find probably, and this will be no surprise to, to you, Brian, or your listeners, 
is things do move a little slower in government, uh, and they do so for for good reason. Um, you know, we are that last safety net. We are that last. There's no one that sort of stands behind government. So there's there's a real um, level of making sure that we're moving forward with the right set of information. Um, and I think you know maybe on more of a just I, I kind of giggle to myself all day long about this is we do have a lot of meetings and a lot of people in meetings. And that's something that, you know, I'm trying to adapt with my team on to to try and drive some different efficiency within the uh, the OCIO office where we can actually divide and um, conquer and do more than than when we all sit in similar meetings together. So those are those are a couple of the things that I find, you know, just the the speed and the volume of meetings to sort of get to end a job on things. But I find more familiar and I think more consistency in that purpose drive of the people that I get to to work with every day. That feels very familiar. So you touched on bureaucracy, which I think is interesting because we often talk about how difficult it can be to navigate government, especially from the outside, because, because it can be so bureaucratic, so much red tape. But I think sometimes we forget, especially larger organizations, that it can be almost just as bureaucratic as government is and almost just as difficult to navigate, um, which would made, made me start to think one of the things that I've seen across government globally is things like what you're doing, where you've taken this long private sector career and, and you've come into public service and you're able to bring in some of that knowledge to help government change and adapt in, in, a, in a more rapid way and then vice versa, right? You've spent, there's people that come in, spend time in government and go back out and bring that same knowledge. But what thoughts do you have around what you've been able to do so far to enable the, um, I, I guess, cutting through some of the bureaucracy to, to make these more rapid changes, knowing you've come from larger enterprise level scaled organizations like in Air Canada and others, um, where you kind of face that same type of challenge. Yeah, I mean, part of, part of what I'm going to reflect on is, you know, I have not met a person in government that does not want to make a difference and does not want to move a file. And maybe part of the the skill or the, I guess, the function of newness I bring to the the table is the fact that, I get to ask the questions when I get told, well, that's not as per policy or we don't have the authorities to do that, which are, you know, big, big components of how work gets done in government. I ask the question of, well, show me where it says that. You, do you get and to beg for, forgive, beg for forgiveness sometimes too? <laughs> Make yeah, some things happen and then say, oh, sorry, I didn't realize. For sure. and I, But I think the, the funnier part is, is it's actually not in the... Um, authorities. It's not something that's constrained. And so it's it's a norm versus a rule. And so that's been part of the fun with my team has been the ability for them to say, oh my gosh, actually, you're right, we can do that. And then to your point, we, you know, we, we go forward, we take a big leap. There's a lot of excitement from the team that comes with, my gosh, look at what we just accomplished. And we did it like in eight weeks instead of 18 months. Then there's the mop up that happens because even if it's within your authorities to do with it's within um, the policy to allow it, it's not comfortable for people. And I think that is part of back to your earlier point, the advantage of 
um, having this sort of in, influx and outflux of people coming from private sector into, into public service and, and vice versa, I'm a huge believer in my 10 short months and take that as a very short data set that tours of service are something that we should really, really be leaning into as a country. I, I wish that every person working in digital in Canada had the opportunity to come in for a period of time and work on a meaty um, problem that we're trying to solve for Canadians or Canadian businesses or for people that are new Canadians coming to the country, um, that they had a chance to work on that because it matters to the country we're building. It also, you know, would send them back out into public, uh, into private uh, sector with a little bit of a different perspective. And certainly I've gained this in the 10 months I've been in seed. It's not as simple as it looks like from the outside. When you think about all of the things that, um, that we weigh in making decisions, um, for the better of all Canadians. And, you know, there's many different types of Canadians that need to be balanced into the decision-making that we make as a government. So, you know, it is a little bit of one part, you know, push on the norms. The second is a little bit of beg forgiveness. And the third is likely just the risk tolerance difference um, between sure. private and public for all the reasons I've talked about. There's, there's a different heaviness to some of the decisions that get made in government. But I also do think that's one of the real opportunities that I want to work with um, the technology leaders across the government, and there's many of them, on how we actually take a bit more of a risk position in a smart way when we're trying to accelerate and advance some of the things that we're trying to do around service, because that's why you do digital. You do it to deliver better service to all Canadians. I might need to have you back on when, whenever you, this tour of duty uh, comes to an end to find out how that goes. Because, uh, And I would be curious to see kind of what approach you take to do that because obviously there are certainly reasons why and, and logical reasons why there's a little bit more risk aversion within government, especially they're stewards of taxpayer money, which is so important. But um, I, would, I, I wanna circle back at one point and kind of see how that, how that looks. I do want to. I also do want to circle back too with to your time at Air Canada real quickly. You touched on it that you were the chief information officer there um, when the pandemic kicked off, and I think it would be very hard to find a an industry that was impacted as much as the the airline industry was around the world. I mean, things literally shut down. No one was flying. No one was traveling anywhere. And I'm going to ask you a question that I, I wonder if somebody's even asked you before. How did you feel in that moment, right? Because not only are you dealing with the pandemic from a personal perspective, but you're in a, a high-profile role in an organization that is a really large, I mean, you touched on an iconic brand within your country and one that was impacted probably just as much as, as any other, any other high-profile market around the world. How did you feel? In, at that moment, and how did you take those feelings and turn them into, or kind of assimilate into some of the the changes you wanted to make to kind of turn things around for your organization? Yeah, Brian, you've asked, I think, the most important question that you ask a leader, which is, you know, how do you feel? And you know, from my perspective, it was 
one of the most difficult things that I have experienced in my career and I think partially set me on the path of where I where I sit today because um, I think we certainly got to see as a, a country just how difficult this was on many many industries and you know Air Canada in particular and on Canadians more generally and you know it was it was heartbreaking uh, to watch an organization that I had been part of for you know, for four and a half years, um, go from a position of, of strength and, and high value and, you know, had worked so hard and we were right in the middle of a large, huge technical transformation, basically replacing our reservation system, like literally right in the middle of it. We had done part one of the cutover. We had part two that was happening, um, at the end, beginning at the end of January, and to see the market destruction of that organization, you know, to see hundreds of planes parked, 20,000 of our teammates that we had to furlough, um, those discussions with the team were like teary. That's the only way that I can describe it. And I still get emotional even thinking about it because it was uncharted territories. Um and you had to lead with vulnerability and you had to show your feelings as part of that, which is something as leaders, I think sometimes we think we shouldn't show how we're feeling about things. Um, I chose to be very open and very tr transparent and vulnerable with my team. And one of the mechanisms that we undertook was we did weekly uh, town halls. So every week I was on a video call. We had dispensed our team's home. Uh, in March, much like everybody else. And every week on Wednesday, I did a one hour town hall. And, you know, the emotions of, of rage, of fear, of, you know, sadness, of anger, like you name the kaleidoscope of emotions that people were going through. And the, the really interesting thing about being in technology was our group was more busy with COVID um, than we, we almost were before because we were driving out all the new self-service things. We were beginning to think about what would new travel look like when people did come back. And so although we had large parts of the organization that were um, being furloughed, you know, our workload was going through the roof. And so that was a very difficult dynamic to work through with the team. And it was a a reminder and a lesson to me that um, you can never communicate too much in a crisis. And sometimes communicating doesn't mean you have anything to say. It's being in a place where you can listen and you can create a space where people know every week they can come and ask questions. And some weeks I got the same question asked the same, like in different ways, five or six different times on the same call. And for me, the feedback I got from the team when I moved on um, about this time last year was that was what had the team that was working remotely in incredible stressful situations work-wise. And we finished our cutover, by the way, and I just have a huge gratitude to our board and to our CEO at the time, Carolyn Romanescu, that they had the fortitude and the belief to allow us to finish that. But that kept the team glued together. That, that thing that opportunity to come together once a week virtually um, created that space. And we would have 90, 95% attendance at those every week. 
and my comms team would say, hey, you know, I think we've been doing this long enough. Like, let's dial these back. And I said, as soon as we have less than 50% of the people coming, we'll dial them back. And that never happened. So, you know, that to me was a huge leadership lesson. I think the other dynamic that was 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 quite interesting for me going through COVID with an airline was, you know, it just makes you realize, and we're certainly seeing this with the, the resurgence of, of travel around the globe, as much as we can work in this virtual way, um, you know, people are driven to connect with other humans, like physically to go and see family. And so like it, really reminded me of the value of that industry in Canada and, you know, around the world that, you know, the airline business is a business that connects people. And, you know, I think the requirement, particularly in a, in a huge geography like Canada to have a healthy industry is important. So I, um, I, I would never (laughs) want to go through what we went through as a team together again, but I would maybe just as last comment say, I could not have been any prouder to support the team that I supported there during that period of time. They were fierce. They were brave. They did things that they thought not possible. And we got the Aeroplan program launched, all the new tech along with that. We put in a brand new reservation system. So technology-wise, organization they set them up beautifully for their rebuild, which, you know, I think we'll see in the months and the years to come. Uh, wow. I think, I think that's impressive. Not only, first of all, you're, you're spot on with communication. I think over communicating can be okay sometimes. And sometimes just connecting to say, guys, nothing's changed is enough right. to kind of put people at ease. And I think that's something that I know I myself forget fairly often. I know I'm sure some of the listeners out there do as well. So just a, that's a good reminder that no information is still information. So um, the other thing, it's it's impressive that you were able to to kick off, or I guess not kick off, but continue a project, a fairly, sounds pretty fairly invasive, a reservation system throughout that, that period. So not only trying to acclimate to a global pandemic, but still being, still kind of thriving in that situation, which is, uh, again, a, a feat amongst itself. So um, kudos to you. And it sounds like a, an impressive team to be able to do that. I, I think the pandemic put leaders like yourself in CIO roles, CTO roles, even um, where oftentimes those leaders could be really heads down and focused on just the, just the technology, just, just the data, all that kind of stuff and put you in a position where uh, you're a little bit more prominent in kind of the organization as a whole. But I also think, and and I'd be curious to get your opinion here, I also think that's something, especially on the CIO side, that's been almost a decade in the works now, where that position has really taken on a much more strategic um, and dynamic uh, position within an organization. How have you seen that role change over the past decade? I think you're exactly right about that. And I think it it has been, to your point, um, an evolution over the last 10, maybe 15 years. And I, I think it's really underpinned by the fact that as more services are deli- delivered in a digital way, 
um, organizations just are becoming more dependent on technology. And as the the leader of uh, ensuring that technology is safe, secure, and reliable, um, you ascend into a role where you can have much more strategic input into how programs are delivered, how policies in the government context are delivered, how um, uh, and how data is is more accessible and usable in a way that can actually inform, you know, whether it's service design or it's it's policy construction. I think we are at a bit of a of a nexus there, and you know, I, I talk a lot um, now within government, but certainly even at Air Canada and Enbridge that, you know, there's, there's multiple roles as I see it that a CIO has and all of them are very strategic. One of them is we run big, large scale operations. And so there is a huge level of responsibility in doing that um, from a security perspective, from a resiliency perspective, because, you don't get to have the strategic discussions if you can't get email to work or if you have a, a laggy um, system that's providing um, service to your customers or you've got a poor user experience. So for me, that's sort of the you know Maslow's hierarchy of needs, food, water, shelter, like your stuff's got to run and it's got to run well. Mm-hmm. Then you can get into the more um, interesting work, which is then how do you take that machine and use it to unlock insights about your customers or about Canadians to better serve them, to give them things that are going to enrich their their lives. And, you know, that is the value of data. You know, I often would say to people, just because we can doesn't mean we should. There needs to be a purpose for what data we're collecting and what we're using it for. Um, you know, part of when we were going through the work at, at Air Canada, and I would suggest probably Government of Canada is not different, Enbridge certainly wasn't, there was volumes and volumes of data and there was thousands of reports that get um, produced, which take time, effort, money, storage, people, all of that. But if you're not using that to actually do something different for your organization, that's the really bold leadership discussion to say, like, maybe we just stop doing that, or maybe we actually measure it differently and use it to do something productive. And then there's the whole side of um, digital technology that is about um, creating accessible uh, level playing field. And so for me, when I think about the, the digital approach for the government of Canada, I think about like leave no Canadian behind and Canadians are not all equal in terms of their tech savviness. Think about, you know, your 80, 85 year old parents and then think about my 21 year old daughter, like very different expectations of how technology participates. What if I'm an indigenous person living up in the North? What if I'm a person with um, a, you know, a, a hearing or a seeing a disability? I have different needs from technology. So for me, that is the strategy piece of how do you actually take this responsibility of having rock solid operations of technology and translate that into the services that you provide, whether that's in a private sector organization or is a public service because we serve Canadians. That is what we do. Um, 
that's the strategy piece. That's the part where a CIO who works horizontally across an organization, and we have like a really cool seat at the table because we do work in a horizontal nature to influence um, what the outcomes look. And it is a multi-year horizon that we get to look over. So like I really think there's no more interesting roles right now um, right around the globe than, than getting to sit in the seat that I have the privilege to sit in. These CIO chairs or chief dig- digital officer types of roles are are pretty cool right now. And that is a sales pitch for anybody that wants to, you know, get into CIOing. Um, It's, it's a really cool career. I was going to say, you might've just signed some people up. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) Uh, Let's get into some of those cooler projects. So you guys have um, worked on some of your foundational elements, right? And kind of kept those rock solid, as you would say, and kind of matriculated into some, some more innovative properties. And one of the things that you really identified as a big focus for you is digital identity. And you kind of you you continue to talk about the value you see bringing it to the citizens of Canada. I think that there's an obvious value to me, but would love to hear from you, kind of what your strategy around digital identity looks like and where you see that value coming back into um, to the citizens. Yeah, I, I think a couple things. One is, um, you know, we've got work to do from a government perspective on, um, you know, making sure that we have a rock solid technology environment. And and that is, again, common in large organizations. So that always remains a bit of a focus um, as I support the CIOs across government uh, to ensure that we've got the right investment approach and priority on on that, because that's a never-ending maintenance capital investment, for lack of a better way of saying it. You know, to your point, there are a couple of files um, that really need to gain some velocity. And so there has been work underway for an, a number of years around how do we provide a better way for Canadians to access services, uh, both at the federal level, but like let's fast forward provincial, municipal, uh, and even with some of the private companies that we interact with. And I'm sure you're no different than me. You've got your password vault full of stuff that you've got all of your user IDs and passwords for everything that you do. I, as we talked about in the sort of the pre-interview part here, have moved all over the country and have had to change driver's licenses, healthcare cards, and all of those things in every province that I've moved to. So there's a there's a, a demand, I think, in this digital economy to have a way for me to prove I am who I am and I actually have the right to access that service. So the minister of the Treasury Board, uh, Minister Forche, um, has really provided us with a platform. She's a, uh, an extremely uh, noisy supporter of the fact that we want to advance the ability for Canadians to have a, uh, a, a easier, more secure, uh, more controlled um, privacy by design access to, to services. And you'll, you'll see that in her mandate letter. And she's been just an outstanding um, cheer person for, for this initiative. And that's really creating some uh, steam for us. So I'm, I'm incredibly pleased that we've got that level of sponsorship. The other thing I would note is that this is not just a federal government uh, play. This is something where we need to work very closely with our colleagues at the, the 
provincial and territorial level so that it is a made in Canadian for all Canadian solution. And what that really translates down into, uh, back to your earlier point around data, is it's not so much about building the technology. Certainly there's a platform play in here for sure, but it's about making sure we define really clear data sharing protocols so that, you know, regardless of what system gets put in place, that there's an ability for us to transit data across multiple jurisdictions and trusted data. And, you know, I think I like to consider this sort of the digital services card for Canadians that's going to allow them to access services. And just as an example, uh, there's about 45 plus front doors into the federal government right now. So if you want to do a you know, a reservation for a camping spot, check your taxes, you know, all the things that you might do as a Canadian, you need different credentials to get in. We're looking to figure a way that you can have one front door and then you've got access into different services as your profile would dictate. And you have visibility and control. Those are all really important things. And for us, it's going to be about how do we get Canadians to want to do this because there's benefit to them to actually participating in a program like this. So this is something where we're not just starting from, you know, the start line, we're, we're well into the race and we're really looking to um, accelerate. And I think uh, what, what I would expect in front of us is sort of 90 day sprints here where we're going to start to, um, develop communication, engagement, consultation, and, and some product uh, initially focused on our own backyard. And that's always where I like to start. So we'll start with the federal family. When you talked about the front door initiative that you have, it, it reminded me, it sound, some of the language in there sounds a lot like what was in the recent executive order uh, from, the, from the United States federal government around customer experience. And it kind of made me think about something in your role as CIO. I'm not saying that, that you necessarily looked at that executive order, but I'm actually curious to know how much do you take um, into consideration what other countries are doing, whether it's in, in North America or, or Europe, Asia, wherever, how much does that influence kind of where you bring some of the policy and changes that you want to deploy for your country? We are very pleased to learn from other jurisdictions and uh, you know on a regular basis um, are reaching out to our colleagues both at a country level but uh, but even within in Canada there's some examples of where we've got certain provinces for example that are a little bit further ahead on the um, digital identity journey so you know we take advantage of that and I always think of it as it sort of you lift all boats if if we share and certainly you know, we, we enjoy a, a close relationship with many governments around the world and benchmark ourselves. I think a little competition is not a bad thing and we want to keep pace with what other citizens are experiencing in other countries. And I would say that there is a wonderful level of collaboration and openness to sharing. And we've got some forums, you know, whether it's digital nations, where we actually um, openly share those types of uh, ideas. So, you know, short answer, long answer to a short question, lots of um, benchmarking that goes on, lots of 
collaboration that goes on. And, uh, you know, we are always looking to advance and learn. And as the, the policyholder for um, service and digital, you know, we are always looking to how we can not just write great policy, but actually implement great policy. And that to me is the rub in these types of roles is it's okay. It's, it's great to have a, a policy. In fact, it's, it's necessary. It's important, but making sure that that gets turned into practice and tangible things that, um, you know, in our case, Canadians can feel um, is not dissimilar to how I thought about it when I was at Air Canada or at Enbridge, which is, you know, if you're developing tools and you're developing um, processes it needs to not serve the organization and not serve the technology group within the organization. It needs to actually serve the people that are experiencing the service. So um, we, we often look to our colleagues that, you know, maybe further ahead, we're also looking to get bold and to, you know, trudge some of our own ground. So we're, we're excited about where we might be able to have others look at us and say, Hey, Canada, you really have got that figured out. And uh, so that's part of the path we're on right now. You used a word in there that's a, a very non-government word, actually. And it brought me back to the the conversation, which I loved earlier, where you said the norms versus the rules. And it's been a norm in government that you're not really competing against other countries per se, right? It's not a rule. But I will tell you, and I'm very, I, I love that you use that word. And I've, I've had a lot of conversations um, with uh, some of your peers in in various countries, especially in in Europe and the Middle East, where they speak very outwardly about looking at the the like perhaps the UN e government index, right, and wanted to wanted to be a little more competitive and get their country ranked a little bit higher in there versus some of some of their peers. How real is that for you? When do you look at at lists like that, or do you take pride? I would imagine in and kind of getting bumping Canada up from uh, from from any position they might be in into a higher role. I, I I do, and you know I think if you reflect back on Canada's performance in what was then called e-government many years ago, we were at the top of that list. So mm-hmm. like we know how to do this. We know how to be at the top of the heap. We're innovators. My goodness, we live in the north, and so we're 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 hardy and strong and all those things, and so. We are very much having that discussion within uh, the Canadian government right now about the fact that we're not where we want to be in terms of um, the index. We're not where we want to be in terms of the number of services that we provide in a digital way for our citizens. And for me, like I do love a little bit of competition. I think that's healthy. But for me, it's really more about making sure we are competitive as a country and we live in a digital age and part of that is making sure that Canadian citizens can interact in a digital way. And I truly believe that part of the opportunity we have in front of us is providing great government in a digital way creates this uh, landscape or this environment where citizens can experience something wonderful in terms of how they interact with the government and that creates a platform to build trust and you know we don't need a reminder given all the things going on around the world for um, the fact that you need to work a democracy and i think that the digital space is one of those places where 
we can and we should. And I do think that, you know, when I put down that slide that sort of shows where we sit compared to global peers, and, you know, not all of them maybe we want to compare ourselves to, but many of them we do, uh, that gets a little bit of a fire going in people's belly. And I think that's good. I think that is an, a good, healthy thing. And, you know, I'm, I think a big part of digital economy, it's not just about doing business mm-hmm. with or having government delivered in a digital age. So what is that North Star then for, for you guys? If you're, as you're looking to be more competitive and you're driving towards something, right? I know I'm, I tend to be fairly competitive and most people that do have something that they're kind of driving towards generally, or maybe multiple things. But if there was a North Star that, that you would say you're trying to point the federal government of Canada to, what would that be? Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually really interesting language because that, that concept of North Star um, is exactly the language that I've been using with our team. And, you know, for me, it is about ensuring that the, the best of Canada is expressed in our digital experiences with Canadians. So the things that we are known for as a country, um, that shows up in our, in our digital channels, for lack of a better way of saying it. And, you know, right now, there's a few files that, you know, I, I am both incredibly encouraged around the, um, the minister's level of support and, and leadership on that I do think we need to, to advance the journey on. And one we've talked about already, which is the digital identity piece and kind of data and everything that goes around it. The other one we, we touched on a little earlier, which is talent development and talent um, attraction and retention. You know, we have a uh, deficit of digital talent in government, as most companies in Canada do. And I don't think that that's generally different right around the globe. And so one of the other big areas that I'm leaning into is how do we actually get more people in uh, on tours of service, um, if if, uh, that term resonates with you, for very fit for purpose um, work that we're going to do. How do we do public-private collaboration differently? How do we actually get um, kids as they're going into high school, um, right into university? You know, I was talking to uh, Chief Bruce, who runs our communication security establishment a couple weeks ago around cyber talent, big issue for both of us, mm-hmm. on how what's the right kind of age to get kids into that hopper, because we know we have a talent deficit in that space. So the, the two sort of North Star initiatives for me, the things that we're really going to um, put shoulder into are those two things. I think a, an underlying theme, and I talked a little bit about the responsibility of safe, secure, reliable um, operations, just ensuring we've got really good prioritization of the work that we need to do to continue to operate uh, rock solid operations be excellent at that and we've got modernization that needs to go on from a technology perspective you know we're going down the cloud path and uh, we've got to be maybe a little more aggressive in that space those types of underlying um, investments are going to take really strong prioritization 
making sure that we've got the right resources on the right uh, things and collaboration. And I think both of those things come back to talent. So those are some of the, I would say, no regret, early move, must do things Mm -hmm. um, for us to accomplish our broader ambition of being able to deliver government in a digital age, which I think we've got some work to do. So before I give you a chance to leave any final thoughts with the audience, I want to ask you one last question that aligns actually very closely uh, to talent management and retention, um, but it's really a construct um, all alone as well, and, and that's around women in technology. And it's a question I'd love to ask women leaders that come on the show. Um, it's a very personal thing for me, especially uh, being a father to a, to a little girl as well. Um, and I, I'm really curious to know any advice that, that you would have that you've received maybe that across your career. And I'll tell you, there's a couple words that have really stuck with me that, that you've said throughout. I want to call out one is, and maybe this isn't a word, but just the idea that it's being okay to be emotional, feeling those emotions, but being vulnerable. But you've also touched about touched on being bold. And also, again, I want to bring back the word being competitive, right? You can you can be that entire spectrum, um, which I think is is great. And I think any good leader should really have all of those attributes and more. But if you took a look back to any advice that that you received, again, that that served you across your career, um, what what have you what would you look back at? You know, it's a, it's a really interesting question, um, and I, I have a, a wonderful opportunity to mentor um, many women that are building their careers up in, in tech and also many men. And so that's been kind of a cool experience. And the interesting part about those mentoring relationships is I dare say I think I get more out of them than the people that I'm supposedly mentoring because um, it, it just really, I always walk away from those conversations, even with some of the questions you get asked that kind of make you think about how you lead differently. And I tell you that only because a big part of I think what I've been very fortunate to have is some exceptional mentors who have bothered to tell me the truth in a way that, you know, could have not gone well for them. So I, I, it's a little bit of the unwritten book um, performance review. And, you know, I think that there's been, you know, I can think of one leader I had in particular at, at Enbridge, uh, David Rowbottom, who was the chief legal officer there that I worked for. Um, and he took so much time and effort and kindness uh, to both redline my documents to the board to a painstaking degree, I might add, but he taught me how to be a really effective communicator. He also would sit and have discussions with me where, you know, he would say, I really worry about you as a single mom and how you're balancing all of this. And let's talk about that. And so, you know, for me, having had this privilege of having these people around me who have had those discussions that that could have gone very badly me going what well, what do you mean don't you think i'm keeping up don't you but it came from such a place of kindness and goodness i think that is the advice that i would have for for frankly all people but you know women in particular 
you know, don't be afraid to surround yourself with men and women who can give you the feedback that you need to hear and listen to it with open heart. Um, and all feedback is good feedback. And it's also not something that you need to overreact on. Um, you take it as a, as a data point. And for me, um, I have always enjoyed taking on sort of the assignments that maybe I didn't exactly have all the skills to do. And that's where I got to kind of bang my head and learn my lessons and, you know, kind of get tuned up for the next um, assignment. So, you know, I do think it's surrounding yourself with people who will tell you the truth about you. And that's in your personal life and in your, in your professional life. And there's not a lot of people in like, I can count them on one hand uh, as I've rolled through my career. And that's both the people that you work for, but equally as important, the people that work with you and the people that work in your team that you have the privilege to support and be open to that feedback and and ask for it and listen. Um, And then I think it is about kind of doing something that gives you those big pterodactyls in your stomach every little bit of time. And for me, um, you know, I like to take on a new assignment, something that really challenges me kind of every five, six years. And people will have different kind of calibrations around what that looks like. And for many people, that can be in the same organization. Like I look at the government, I can see after 10 months how 30 years can disappear. The complexity and the breadth of what we get to do is just astonishing in here. And then I I would also say, just as a a woman leader, like I've had to balance the reality of being a mom to two kids, um, you know, being a single parent for most of my life, um, wanting and desiring to have a career, um, wanting to be the mom that's at school doing the activities. And I've taken breaks in my career. Um, I've taken leaves in my career. Um, I have uh, prioritized my mental health well sometimes and not prioritized it well sometimes. And I think just, you know, learning that as a, as a woman who's got maybe a different set of responsibilities than perhaps some of our male colleagues, not all of our male colleagues, frankly, and just learning that it's okay to not always be on at work. And, you know, happy moms are good moms. As my mom once told me, it's okay to be a mom that wants to work. So, and it's okay to be a mom that doesn't want to work and just kind of acknowledging that. So, you know, I, I wish often that I could put some of the experience that I have on my 30 year old shoulders, but that's not the way life works. So hopefully that's a little bit helpful for some of your listeners that are trying to thread the needle on being a mom and, and, and working. I appreciate you leading into that question so much and, and the transparency and the vulnerability that, that you provided there. So i um, really, really thankful for that. Uh, before uh, we wrap up, would love to give you a chance to, to leave any final thoughts you have with the audience. And let me remind you, you've already done your sales pitch for government, so you can't, you can't end with that. It's got to be something else. <laughs> You're very lucky you said that, Brian, because that's exactly <laughs> where I was going to go. Um, you can double down. It's fine. Yeah, you know, I, I would I would say that um, you know we are at such a an astonishing time in terms of the implications of what digital means in our world. Like we've experienced um, digital in, in such a different way in the last couple of years, and I would I would say that it's a pretty amazing and awesome time to be in the types of roles that 
you know, probably many of the folks listening to this podcast are in. So like, enjoy that. It's been maybe not so fun and cool and sexy to be in technology, um, you know, ever more than it is right now. The other thing, and if I could, I, I touched on it a little bit when you asked about advice for women in technology. You know, the last couple of years have been really hard. And, you know, one of the things I lean into uh, both in work, but certainly where I spend a lot of time outside of work is on mental health. And so it's something near and dear to my heart to always open that conversation. And I think as leaders more generally, not just as technology leaders, you know, approaching our teams with kindness right now, there's been very little that we seem to have had control on in the last few years. Um, that's been a really important leadership conversation for me to be having um, with my teams across the years. So maybe Brian, I would just wrap with that is to, you know, encourage folks to create an environment with their teams where, you know, there can be a discussion around, um, I'm not okay and that's okay because mental health is health. So I'll perhaps just leave it there. I think that's a great mic drop. I think there, there's probably, especially right now, no better thing to prioritize right now making sure we're all uh, looking at our mental health. So Catherine, thank you again for being on the show. Really appreciate it. We touched on so much today um, and I think you brought a lot of value to everybody listening. So thank you again. All right. Thanks so much, Brian. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to govexec.com backslash podcast where access yours. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittis Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.